Any of you uh, Marvel fans? Any of you uh, fans of Marvel? If you're familiar with Marvel, if you just got Disney Plus and you're finally like going back and seeing all the movies in order, uh, we started doing that. We had to kind of put a pause on it because some of the kids, uh, it's not age appropriate for some of our children. So some of it's just me and Christy. But nevertheless, you can go back and you can say, uh, go back to Iron Man in 2008 or whatever and go all the way through because of Disney Plus and you can watch them all in order, all 55 of them or how many of there are, right? Uh, but before, let's say, let's say, before Thor and Captain America and uh, Iron Man, there was another Avenger, and his name was Jehu. We just read about him, uh, except he did, Jehu did the work of the Lord. He wasn't make-believe. And so in chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see the story of this Jehu, the Avenger, the, the carrier out of the justice of Yahweh, the carrier out of the justice of the Lord. Uh, and so he is uh, raised up, he's raised up as king for primarily one purpose, which we've just read, to be the one that brings the uh, justice of God to the wicked people of Israel. That's, that's what he's raised up for. Uh, now, <clears throat> to understand why all this is going on, because if you read that, you're like, go... Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with the kings or you haven't been with us for a while and you read all this and you're like, wow... Uh, God just raised this man up king, and then he told him to go strike down a bunch of people and go kill a bunch of people. That makes me nervous whenever I hear about God telling uh, somebody to go kill a bunch of people. What's going on there? I don't understand. When we read these kind of things and we start wondering what's going on, we can get a little bit nervous, uh, and we don't understand it. And it makes us think, why is God doing that? And what if an unbeliever asks me about that? How am I going to answer the questions from unbelievers? So let me give the background to what's going on here in second Kings nine. So why is God telling Jehu to go be the Avenger? What, what did those people do that Jehu has to go avenge? So, uh, in first Kings chapter 21, uh, this is really the background. So in first Kings chapter 21, there was a guy named Naboth, Naboth, good guy, had a vineyard, just ran a vineyard. That's all he did. <clears throat> and so right beside Naboth was this uh, area where Ahab, Ahab was the king of Israel and Ahab had this entire kind of palace and right beside him was Naboth's vineyard. And he looks over at Naboth's vineyard, King Ahab, who was just terrible. Ahab was a terrible guy married to a terrible lady named Jezebel. Uh, and they were, they were Israel, the, the king of Israel and the queen of Israel, uh, but just terrible people. The whole point of the Kings, by the way, is you start with David and Solomon who were in some ways, the good kings and then the rest of the kings is just kind of the downward trajectory of how terrible they are, helping us see that all these kings are terrible and our only hope is really the king of kings, Jesus. Um, so back to Ahab. So Ahab looks over at this, at, this, <coughs> at this vineyard and he's like, you know, I really want that vineyard because it's close and I can grow some vegetables there. And so he goes over to Naboth and he's like, hey, Naboth, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth's like, nah, this, this vineyard's been in my family forever, not for sale. And so uh, Ahab goes back to his house, and no doubt, I mean, if you read it in 1 Kings 21, 1 through 8, uh, Ahab throws a huge pout. He's just literally sitting in his house pouting, and his wife comes up, who doesn't like to see her man being a big baby, and she's like, what's the matter with you? Why are you pouting like this? He's like, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. And he's like, so he's, he's pouting really big. She's like, okay, well, I'll take care of him. And she's not, a, she's not a good lady at all, right? So she goes, and she tells two people, what I want you to do is make a pronouncement about Naboth that he's done something wicked. We'll have two witnesses, uh, and then when he, when he does that, we're going to stone him. And so she 
gets two worthless fellows to do this. They make a pronouncement that Naboth has done something bad. Uh, and then they take Naboth and all of his sons and they stone them all to death. And the reason why they do the sons as well is so that no one will inherit the vineyard. So there, there are no people that can inherit it. So now the vineyard's free and clear for the king to come in and say, it's mine now. And so Jezebel makes all this happen. And she comes back and she says, hey, uh, just to let you know, Ahab, I took care of the whole situation. Naboth is dead. All of his sons are dead. You can have the vineyard now. Now, the Lord looked upon all of this and said, this is wicked. This is terribly wicked. And so he sends, if you pick up at 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17, he sends a prophet, Elijah, the Tishbite, in verse 17, to them. And he says, just to let you know, Ahab, just to let you know, Jezebel, what God thinks about what you did. Uh, let me tell you what, he, what God says. Arise. And he tells the prophet to go down to Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession of it with, with terrible measures. And you, I want you to tell him, thus says the Lord, you have killed and taken possession of this. You shall say to this man, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs also lick up your own blood. So what you just did, the same thing's eventually going to happen to you. And uh, if you keep going, basically when you get to 25, Ahab's like, he has this kind of like short-term repentance. It's not, it's not kind of long-term repentance where we would say, oh, wow, that guy's really had a changed life. It's, it's like immediate remorse, but doesn't last. But because he ha- at least has this little slight elite immediate remorse, God says, okay, I'm not going to do it to you, but I am going to do it to your sons. They're going to get the justice of God, but I won't do it to you. You can just die one day. You'll just die, but I won't take you out one day, eventually. But he does tell Jezebel in verse 23, Jezebel says, he says to Jezebel, the dogs, the dogs are going to eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel where she lives. Like you're going to die and the dogs are going to literally eat you. Uh, which is pretty disgusting. Um, And so, but if you look down in verse 29, this is what he says to Ahab. Because you've temporarily humbled yourself, I'm adding temporarily, humbled yourself before me, uh, then I will not bring the disaster in your days, but I'm going to bring it on your sons. I'll bring the disaster upon him. And before you read that, you're like, well, those poor sons, they didn't even do anything. Let's just realize the sons were terrible people too. Just awful. They followed in Ahab's footsteps. They were terrible. Well, 12 years has gone by and the Lord has let his justice be withheld for a while. Uh, justice delayed is what's going on. So when we come to Second Kings 9, it's a reckoning. It's time. God has withheld justice long enough. And so it's time to bring about the justice that should happen back. So when we, we are here, uh, what we're picking up on is not canceled justice, just delayed justice. And so God raises up Jehu to be king of Israel and says, it's time for you now to go carry out my justice. Now, just so you know, there is already a king in Israel. His name is Joram. And so God has just said, Joram, you're not going to be king anymore. I'm going to raise up Jehu. Now, Joram's still alive. And so thus begins the... <laughs> the killings that will happen, which we're going to get to in a second. And I do want to talk about that because I don't want us to be, you know, flippant about death. We should never just be flippant about death. But before we enter into what is um, probably one of the most bloodiest passages in all of Scripture, chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Second Kings are some of the bloodiest uh, chapters in all the Bible. We can see this. And we can get a little bit nervous, especially whenever we're reading and we see, all right, 
We have this prophet who looks at another prophet and he says, young man, I want you to go and take this oil, go all the way to Ramoth Gilead where the commanders are. I want you to find, uh, I want you to find Jehu, take him inside the little inner chamber. And when you take him in the inner chamber, just you and him, pour the oil on his head and then tell him he's the king and then just get out of there. Don't stay and play bingo or whatever. Don't watch Netflix for a little bit. Just, just run. Um, and they didn't have bingo or Netflix. So anyway, uh, but when he says that in verse three, the key thing that we need to see is what, what transpires after he's uh, anointed king of Israel is much blood. I mean, just Jehu goes and starts killing everybody. And when we see that, we can be like, wow, Jehu, what a, what a terrible fellow. But we don't need to miss this because verse 3 um, sets down a stake that helps us understand why all this is going to happen. And it can make us really nervous when we read it. Look at verse 3. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, here's those four words, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Those four words, because God has sent forth these things, those four words are the catalyst, the impetus of all the things that will transpire in verses 9 and 10. If God had not thus said the Lord, none of these people are going to die, likely in the way that they're going to. And so when we read that, we can say, okay, ultimately, all these transpire, all this blood, all this killing happens because of God. And when we read that, we can get a little bit squishy, nervous and not like the way it is, don't know how to answer. Even as Christians, it can make us feel weird. Uh, and we can kind of go different in, in two different kind of perspectives. One can be fear and restlessness. Like, okay, that makes me nervous and scared and a little bit restless and a little bit like, uh, I don't know if I like that because ultimately we can start thinking, okay, if the Bible says that God is sovereign and good, if I'm restless and fearless, either one of those is true, but it can't be both. Either he is good but uh, just totally weak and can't stop any of this, or he's sovereign and all this has happened, but man, is he bad? Like, is he really, is he good? And all this has happened. So we can get a little bit nervous, uh, but ultimately thus says the Lord, when we read that, if he's, we can't say that he's sovereign and good, and we get a little bit to where we can't, we feel like we can't trust what God is doing, at least. It makes us nervous, because why would God do all this? First, we should stop and just say, um, no one is good. No one. I'm not good. There's no such thing as a good person. Every person that's ever lived besides Jesus and Adam before he fell has always been a continual state of, of uh, sin. All of us. And so every one of us deserve justice. Every one of us deserve judgment. Every one of us deserve wrath. But the Lord in his infinite mercy chooses to show grace and mercy upon some. And so before we get too squishy and be like, how can God do this? Because every one of us deserves this. Now, there's the second way we can go, which is joy and rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that he's good. So when we read this text, when we say, thus says the Lord, it doesn't shake us from the foundations because we believe that God is sovereign and God is good. And in order to be God, everything he does is always good. Whether we understand it or not, you can't be God unless everything you do is good. Or you're not God. And you can't be God and not be totally sovereign. And so what we have to stop and think is whenever things like this happen, the best thing I can say is I might not fully understand it, but God is still sovereign. God is still good. And so when I see thus says the Lord, I, I have to be okay with it. I have to be okay with it. Um, and ultimately you can get to a place where you can be okay with it. You can read stuff like this and say, no, this is good. This is good that God's doing this. That's controversial. 
but we'll talk about it in just a second. Now, let's make sure we understand here. So, um, thus says the Lord, and he's going to tell him all these things. He's going to pour the oil on his head and tell him he's the king. Uh, and then in verse 7, 8, and 9, as soon as he's uh, anointed king, he's going to, the, pro- the, the, the son of the prophet is going to look at him and say, Jehu, here's your task as king. You're the avenger. Here's your task. So we're going to read 7, 8, 9, verses 7, 8, 9. We're going to get a full grasp of what he's supposed to do. He's been given a task now that he's king. It's not just, you know, go sit on the throne and rule and, and just chill and have people feed you grapes. No, you've got a deal. Like you've got a certain task you've got to do. Verse 7, 8, 9. Now that you're king, Jehu, you shall, here it is, strike down the house of Ahab. Ahab, the house of Ahab is the one that caused this destruction to the righteous man Naboth and his vineyard. Je- Jezebel did it. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that... Now, let's not miss this, okay? So the task is given to Jehu. Jehu, you're going to do all this. But as you read this, um, ultimately, God's saying that he's the one that's doing it. Because you see this... So you shall, in verse 7, you shall strike down the, ta- the house of your Ahab, your master, so that I... Now, that first person singular I is talking about God. And in 7... And in eight and in nine, we're going to have three instances where he's going to say, I will avenge, I will cut off, I will make this happen. So God is saying, Jehu, you're going to do it, but ultimately I'm the one that's doing it. So seven through eight and nine, watch it. You shall be the one that strikes down the house of Ahab so that I may avenge on Jezebel. By the way, that's where I get Jehu the avenger. So anyway, uh, the uh, blood of my servants of the prophets, the blood of the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish and... I will cut off Ahab from every male bonder free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. I know you don't know what that is, but let's just, let's just all assume that's not good. Um, and then verse 10, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel and none shall bury her. We already know that's going to happen. Told us in first Kings 21, 23. And so that's the task that's given to him. Go be the avenger. Go be the avenger. And ultimately, we see here, they, they come out of the room and everybody's like, hey, uh, Jehu, what did the guy tell you? What did this, what he calls him in verse 11, this mad fellow. This is just a derogatory term that they used for prophets back then. And they didn't like the prophets then. They don't like them now. They never did. Um, and he says, well, basically, I'm the king. Uh, he just anointed me king. And so you can see what their first reaction is in 13. Well, they say, oh, well, let's throw our garments under your feet and declare your king. This, this throwing garments under their feet is a, an act of declaring, oh, we know you're king now. So you're the king. So that's, that's part one. That's the anointing of Jehu. Uh, there's three sections. This next section is going to be the avenging by Jehu. Now he's going to go avenge. The last one will be the assessment of Jehu. We'll get that later. But what we're going to do now uh, is have... From 914, you can see it goes to all the way to 1027. We're going to have episodes of, uh, several episodes of Jehu just going around being the Avenger. And there's, as I said, there's lots of death, lots of death. And so when we, when we read this, I don't want us to be kind of desensitized to like, oh, because we watch movies where people just get killed all the time. We're like, it's just like watching a movie. It doesn't bother me. It should always bother us. It should, it should terrify us whenever we see people getting killed um, and read about people, get, people getting killed. And so when we're seeing this, um, I'm not just going to kind of laissez-faire act like it's no big deal. It is a big deal. But I want us to understand why. So when we're going through it, uh, and I'm saying, here it is, here it is, here it is. Um, I want us to, I'm going to try my best as we're going through it to take us above what's happening 
to the, to the larger discussion of why this is happening and what is it that God's trying to help us understand? What is it that God's trying to teach us here? So we're going to see a series uh, starting in 914 all the way through 1027 of divine judgment being carried out by Jehu on wicked people, on wicked people, not righteous people. And it's going to be bloody. As Dale Davis wisely warns us when we go through this, he says, this is a situation involving the judgment of God. And it's very difficult to make judgment pleasant. Judgment is never pleasant. So um, the first thing is you've got the two kings in Israel. Now, Jehu has just announced king of Israel. By this time, Israel's been split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. So there's a king of Israel to the north, Jorah. Uh, Joram, I'm sorry, and there's a king of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, of Judah to the south, which is Ahaziah. You can see his name in verse 27 when Ahaziah. So if in chapter 8, Joram and Ahaziah had joined forces and they're fighting the king of Syria, who's not an Israelite. They were fighting him, but Joram had gotten injured, so he retreated and he was in this particular city, kind of recovering from his injury uh, from war. And, the, and Ahaziah and Joram are both there. And Jehu knows that they're there. And so Jehu's going to go. You can see uh, what's going to happen. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead. So they, he's recovering from this war that he had had with Haziel, who's the king of Syria. So that, this, that all happened in chapter 8. And he's just recovering. Jehu knows, well... The king of Israel and the king of Judah. I'm actually the king of Israel, but the old king of Israel and the current king of Judah are over in this city. I'm going to go and it's time to start avenging. And so he goes over there. Uh, you can see, but King Joram had returned and to, to be healed in Jezreel in the wounds of the Syrians that had given him. But he fought with Haziel, the king of Syria. So Jehu said, um, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go tell the news of Jezreel. And Jehu mounted his chariot. And went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So he's going to Jezreel, where these two kings are. And on the way, so you can just kind of picture it. So here comes Jehu with his crew going up to Jezreel. He's going to go avenge. And there's a watchman way over there in Jezreel. And he's looking, and he's like, uh, hey, King Joram, somebody's coming. Uh, it's so far, they didn't have binoculars or telescopes. It's, it's pretty far. I don't know who it is. And so Joram, who's recovering, sends out a messenger uh, out there to the people that are coming. And he says to Jehu, uh, hey, are, are you, basically, are you coming in peace? Are you coming in peace? And Joram, or, or Jehu, the avenger, says, uh, best thing for you to do is just go back to the back of us and just get in line in the very back and just stay back there. And so... Um, the messenger never comes back. And so the watchman looks over and he goes, yeah, we sent the, uh, the messenger out there, but he never came back. And so, uh, what do you want me to do? And King, King Joram, who's recovering, he's like, send another guy. And so he sends a second guy out there and he goes up to Jehu. And he's like, Hey, are you, are you coming in peace? And, uh, Jehu says, Hey, the best thing you can do is just get back in the back and just stay back in the back. You don't want to be a part of this. I'm, I'm, I'm shorthanding it. And so, uh, this, and so the watchman looks out and he goes, so the second guy didn't come back either. Um, what do you want to do? And so, uh, Joram has this brilliant idea. He's like, I know what I'll do. Me and Ahaziah, the king of Israel and the king of Judah, let's just go out and meet this guy. 
just maybe the worst idea ever, right? Let's just go out and meet this guy that's coming. So we're picking up here uh, in verse 21. Joram says, make ready. And they all got in their chariot. Uh, and Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahazi, the king of Judah, set out each in their own chariot and went up to Jehu to meet him. Now watch this. Don't miss where they meet. Watch this. Of all places, at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite, the irony of all ironies. They go, they're meeting right in the same place where Ahab um, had done all these things. And remember, uh, Joram is a descendant of Ahab, carrying out the same treachery of Ahab. And so they meet of all places, Ahab. And then he looks at him and he goes, hey, uh, basically he goes, hey, hey, Jehu, are, are we good? Like, is everything good? And he goes, is it peace? Like, uh, is, is, everything, is everything okay between us? And if there ever is a line that tipped off that there's no peace... It's this particular line from this uh, Avenger, Jehu the Avenger. This is what Jehu says. He, he doesn't mix words, that mince words, mix words. I don't know, it's one of those. He doesn't mix words at all. This is what he says. What peace can there be as long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother, mother Jezebel are so many? So at that particular point, Joram, after he cleaned himself up, uh, realizes uh, to Ahazia, I think we're in trouble. We, we probably should should run out of here as fast as possible. So they they, they split. They they split there. Uh, but while they're splitting, it says, And Joram reigned and fled about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! So we're, we're in trouble, Ahaziah. And so Jehu sees all this, and he gets his bow out. And in full strength, he sees Joram trying to run, and he shoots an arrow right through his shoulders, through his back, and it goes through his heart. Joram's dead, just like that. Jehu the Avenger, uh, he can shoot like, you know, people that can shoot. I don't know. An Avenger that can shoot. Hawkeye. So there we go. And so he can shoot like Hawkeye. Um, and so here we see Jehu with full strength shot Joram between his shoulder blades. The so arrow pierced his heart and sank in his chair. Jehu said to Bidkar to his aide, take him up and throw him in the plot belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab the father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. And as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. Now, just as a little side note, 26 there, and it says, and his sons. That lets us see that not just Naboth was killed for the land, but all of his sons. First Kings 21 doesn't ever mention that the sons were, but it's not till much later here in, in chapter 9 that we get to see, and the sons were killed. And that's because uh, Je- Jezebel didn't want anybody to inherit the land, so she kills all the sons too. Back to the text. Um, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him in the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So that's A, Joram king of Israel. And he's eliminated. And then you get to Ahaziah who takes off. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him uh, and said, shoot him. And they shot him in the chariot of the son of Gesur, which is by Iblim. I know y'all don't know all these places. It's fine. Just He died. Um, he, he got killed too. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism behind it all, but he died. And that brings us to point two, Ahaziah, king of Judah. That's just two. There's more. But... Let's stop and go back up to verse 22 and let's consider this, this unbelievable answer. Like, oh, we good? We good? What peace can there be as long as the whorings and the sorceries of Jezebel are still present in Israel? How can there be peace? In other words, what he's saying is there is no peace right now in Israel 
Joram and Ahaziah, you wretched kings that are causing all of Israel to be wretched idolaters. You have not created any kind of peace between Israel and God because you caused them to go worship all of these false gods instead of leading them as the kings to worship God correctly. How can there be peace? Jezebel, your mother, is causing all of these, as he says, whorings and sorceries. So how can there be peace? You're supposed to be leaders, and in Israel, there's a massive worship problem here, which is you are idolaters, and you're causing all of Israel to be idolaters, and God does not share his worship with anybody. Rightly, God should never share his worship. God's never going to partly say, well, you you can worship me, and you can worship all these other things. God's like, all the worship for me. Now, if anybody else does that, they're just a terrible person, right? But God who is perfect and holy, has to do that. All worship comes to me because he's the only one that's worthy. And so he's telling them, you leaders have led Israel into this false worship. And Jehu, the avenger, has been raised up to eliminate all this false worship. God is going to extreme measures by raising up Jehu, the avenger, to bring this about. Which tells us something, right? God takes worship seriously. Very seriously, that he will go to extreme measures to bring about justice so that people will stop being idolaters and start being worshipers of God. When we hear this, as I said, when we read these extreme measures that God goes to to eliminate bad worship, it can strike us sometimes in a, in a fearful, negative way. Like, oh, man, what if an unbeliever reads this and like, how, how do I uh, how do I answer it? When unbelievers hear this, it can make us uncomfortable and we don't know how we're going to answer sometimes, right? Um, a God that deals with sin like this. So I want to, I want to read to you a quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, a guy that lived a while ago, he wrote this book called Knowledge of the Holy. Knowledge of the Holy is about kind of the, the characteristics of God. God has immutable and mutable characteristics. Immutable. Immutable means like some things we share in common and some things we don't. Like God is love. We can also love. Those are characteristics we share with God. Immutable as in God is sovereign. We're not sovereign. Like those are things we don't share with God. We have, we have characteristics that we share with God and characteristics that we don't share with God. So he wrote this book called Knowledge of the Holy explaining all that. Um, and in that book, in, when he starts it, he tells us because he wants us to understand it's important for you to understand things about God. And this is what he writes. Now, this is lengthy, and I know that we're all part of this social media process where we can only read 140 characters and then we can't remember anything. But you aren't like that. You have amazing capacity to listen to long quotes. And so I'm going to go for it. All right, here it is. (laughs) So remember, the context is how can we think about God whenever... Passages like this describe God taking sin so seriously so that he's willing to kill people to eliminate uh, his justice. This is what it says. A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about the word, when somebody says God, what comes into our minds when we think about God is literally the most important thing about us. How you conceive God is one of the most important things about you. Is God small? Is God weak? Is God my servant? Or am I his servant? What you think about, when you think of God, it's one of the most important things about you. Because you are now realizing who you are in the place of his creation. 
And whether you sit on the throne or whether he sits on the throne, what comes in your mind is the most important thing about us when we think about God. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains either high or low thoughts about God. If you have high thoughts about God, then you'll have pure worship. If you have low thoughts about God, then it'll be base worship, terrible worship. For this reason, the gravest question before this church, the church, is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not whether at any time he may say, or do what this man may say or do, but what in his deep heart he conceives God to be like. One of the most important things that we can understand is what we think about God. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is not, this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So now the most important, Okay, this seems big then. If these things make me uncomfortable and the most important thing about me is what I think about God, then how am I supposed to understand this? Here's the thing. God has always taken sin seriously. Always. There is no like Old Testament God and New Testament God. And Old Testament is real big deal and New Testament's not. And Old Testament's real vengeful and New Testament is lovey-dovey and, you know, like a, a tree hugger or something. Like, that's not it, right? The, God has always taken sin seriously. He's always taken seriously. He's always hated sin. When we think of God, the fact that he doesn't share his worship with others and that he takes sin seriously should cause us then, if that's the truth, because don't forget, we're sinners. We're sinners. And if God always hates sin, always takes worship seriously, and always deals with sin in a real um, treacherous way, then that should cause us to pause and tremble about our daily lives. We should stop and think, oh man, what does that mean then? Um, Is there any kind of New Testament verse that shows us how serious God is about sin? So just to make sure we understand God hates sin and takes it seriously in the Old Testament, as does the New Testament. Here, Jehu is bringing about judgment against these wretched wretched people. In the New Testament, he's doing the same thing, but instead of all of us getting it, he just takes it and he pours it all out on his own son, Jesus, demonstrating just how serious he takes sin. Instead of people getting judgment, he just puts all of the judgment on innocent Jesus. And if we put our faith in him, we can be forgiven. Both testaments show that God takes sin seriously. But after we become Christians, and now that we're walking as believers, are there more more verses that help us see as Christians now, with the Holy Spirit in me, walking along in this process of, of what we call sanctification, that just means now that I'm a Christian, becoming more like Jesus. Are there verses that say, I should also still take sin seriously? Yes. Matthew chapter 5 says this. If your right hand, I'm sorry, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Well, that's, that's extreme. If my eye causes me to do things that are sinful, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, rip out my eye and throw it away. And then he says, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown to hell. It's better to go to heaven blind 
than to go to hell being able to see. And then he says right after that, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. It's better to go to heaven with one hand than to go to hell with two. Now, he's not literally saying, cut your hand off or gouge your eyes out. What he is saying is, take extreme measures to kill sin in your life. He's taking extreme measures to kill sin here in, the, in chapters 9 and 10. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Take extreme measures in your life. So as a believer who's redeemed but still has ongoing sin working itself out, he's still looking at you by the power of the Holy Spirit in you saying, take extreme measures in your own life for the ongoing sin that you're well aware of. Don't uh, just let it stay there. Don't pet it. Say, this is my pet sin. It's just going to hang out for a while. No, no, no. Whatever it is, and you know it's it, take extreme measures. And don't. that is not legalism. That is not legalism to take extreme measures. It's not legalism. If someone tells you that it's legalistic to take extreme measures to kill your sin, they're wrong. It's not. So take extreme measures, which helps us see then God is always taking extreme measures to kill sin and idolatry. When we come back to here then, what peace can there be? How can there be peace when there's sin? Well, ultimately, we can have peace with God because Jesus has taken our sin from us. God put all of his judgment on him. As the Bible says in John 14, 28, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give. How is that? Because Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, for in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning Jesus was fully God and fully man. And when he went to the cross and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross, the cross of Jesus Actually, there was enmity between God and man. We were rebels. We couldn't stand God. We wanted to do our own way. And we had great enmity, not wrought by God, but wrought by us. There was great enmity and we needed to have peace. And so Christ Jesus came and died on the cross, ushering in now peace between us and God the Father. Jesus is the link that brings us back into relationship with God, making peace between us as Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Now Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning if we put our trust and faith that Jesus died on the cross for us, Jesus in my place, he is the one, the substitutionary atonement. He died in my place then we can be completely given. And that enmity no longer exists. And now we are ushered into right relationship with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and only through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. John 14.6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we want peace with God. The only way that it can happen is through Christ. So as we're seeing this, kind of unfolding of Joram and Ahaziah getting killed, ultimately is helping us see that God takes sin seriously. And he has dealt with it for us by Jesus dying on the cross for us. And so, um, as we're going through this, we see how Jehu is going to continue to uh, bring about, um, bring about the righteous judgment of God. He's going to go to Jezebel now. Remember, Jezebel is the one that actually did the work of killing Naboth in First Timothy. I'm sorry, First Kings 21. There's no such thing as First Timothy 21. <laughs> so anyway, uh, preacher joke. No one left. All right, verse 30. Um, so Jehu 
is going to come to Jezreel. Uh, and so he's going to, he's going to Jezreel. That's where it's just funny that Jezebel lives in Jezreel. I just find it funny. So she's there and she sees him coming. So what is she going to do? She's going to put on a bunch of man- makeup and stand by the window because that's what people do whenever they're coming to kill you. And they get a bunch of makeup and stand by the window. So here it is. Uh, and when he comes to her, she's going to have makeup and sarcasm. That's her, that's her deal. She's going to go out with makeup and sarcasm. Verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace? And she says, you Zimri. Now this is just uh, a charge of treason. So in the, in the first Kings, this guy Zimri wanted to be king. And so he kills the king and he ruled and reigned for seven days <laughs> until somebody killed him. Uh, and then that was it. So he got, so she's saying, Hey, Jehu, just like Zimri killed the king, you're a treasonous person just like him. Except the big difference is Zimri was an anointed king. Jehu was. So God said, Jehu, you're supposed to be king. Zimri wasn't. So it's a wrong accusation, but she, she's trying to dig at him. Uh, is it peace? That's just like, are we okay? We're not okay. Uh, you Zimri murderer of, ma- of your master. So make up and sarcasm. And so he lifted his face to the window and he said, who is on my side? He's looking at people. He's like, any of you on my side? And this is strange, but two or three eunuchs are looking at him and they said, well, we are. And he's like, uh, go throw her out of the window. So they take her and it's throw her out of the window. Apparently it's pretty far down. And this is where it gets pretty nasty. So it says this. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses. And then the horses trampled on her. Uh, and so after that happens, he's like, you know what? I could use a sandwich. So he goes in and eats for a little while. And so while he's eating, uh, he's just sitting here eating his food. And he's like, oh, man, I just realized Jezebel was a queen. So I guess she's supposed to be buried. So go get her body so we can bury her. We're supposed to do that right. And so they go out there and they come back and they're like, so we uh, we tried to get her body, but we can't find her body. So there's head and hands and feet, but the dogs ate the rest of her. Just like it said in first Kings 21, 23, that's what it says. So he's first 24. So he went in and drank. So he went in and ate and drank. I'm going to go get a sandwich, maybe have a beer or whatever. And he says, now uh, see to this cursed woman and beer for she's a king's daughter. And he went to bury her and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, they said, this is the word. He said this. So he pronounces this kind of judgment over her. He looks at first Kings 21, 23, and he interprets it as this is why that happened. Uh, where it says the dogs are going to eat her in Jezreel. He says, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to by his servant, Elisha, the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel. The dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the courts of Jezebel shall be. Here it is as dung on the face of the field and the territory of Jezreel so that no one can say this is Jezebel. In other words, she's worth dog dung. That's what she's worth. Um, and as you're looking at this, this is what Dale Davis says. So you look at this, he, Dale Davis, the commentator, he looks at this death of Jezebel, wife of the king of Ahab, the wretched lady that she is, and says, the grossness of the judgment of her fits the wickedness of the offender. She, she died like a dog, that little phrase, she, because this is what she deserved. She was a terrible lady, terrible. And Jehu, the avenger, was raised up. He's not done. He's not done. So now he's going to go in chapter uh, 10, uh, verse one through 11. And he's going to go in there. Ahab, uh, <clears throat> Ahab is the one that eventually took the vineyard. Ahab worshiped Baal and God detests this. And so he's going to go Ahab, Ahab had 70 sons and remember his task in 
First King, Second Kings nine seven through uh, nine was to eradicate everybody from Ahab. So what, this is his next task. He goes in ten one through eleven, and he's going to find all the sons of Ahab. So we get here and says seventy heads of sons. We don't mean like uh, like uh, kind of symbolically. Oh, you're the head of something. No, we literally mean the head. Like he's going to get all seventy heads of the sons of Ahab, uh, and they're going to they're all going to die. So. Basically, what he does is he goes in there and he writes this letter to these people who are scared to death of him. And they're like, uh, he writes this letter, like, we're scared of you. What do you want? And he writes this other letter. He's like, okay, since you're scared of me and you'll do whatever I want, I want you to go find, in this particular area here, I want you to go find all 70 sons of Ahab. I want you to cut all their heads off and I want you to bring them back to me. Uh, and so they're like, all right. So when they bring him back to him, he's like, good. Here's the 70. I don't know if it's a bag, I guess. Who knows what? So a net. So they bring the 70 heads back in the net. And he's like, good. Um, go put them in two piles by the entrance of the gate so that everybody knows how Yahweh feels. Uh, and so that's what happens here. Um, we'll skip down to verse six. This is the second letter. You need to obey me. Take the heads of your son's masters. Uh, and his Verse 7, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons. They put their heads in basket and sent them. Just imagine being the messenger here. You're like, the, the U.S. Postal Service got a special delivery for you, Jehu. Verse 8, um, uh, I, have, I brought the heads of the kings of the sons. And he says, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Just strange. And then the morning he went out and he stood to all the people and basically says, yeah, I king killed Joram. I didn't kill these guys. I did kind of give the charge to do it. Uh, so uh, this is what's going to happen. And then he goes, uh, verse 10, the house of Ahab, the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all the great men and his close friends and the priests until he left none remaining. So that means not only did he kill the 70 sons, but he killed everybody else there. Wiping out completely everybody that's there with <clears throat> Jehu or with Ahab. And you read all this and you're like, why? Why did he do this? And the reason is because all these people were just absolutely um, wicked. And so verse 11 gives us this summary statement of, of things. In verse 11, so Jehu struck down everybody that remained in the house of Ahab because that's what he was told to do. And then he still wasn't done. <coughs> um, Remember, there were two kings, Joram and Ahaziah. Now he's going to go to the, the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, Ahaziah's relatives, and he's going to kill all of them in 12 through 14. So you can go ahead and put up the next one. In 12 through 14, he set out to Samaria. He on his way. He went to Beth, uh, Bethlehem to the shepherds. Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, the king. And he said, who are you? And they said, we're the relatives of Ahaziah. Bad answer. Um, uh, we came down to visit the oral prince and the son of the queen. And he said, Take them alive, and he took them alive and slaughtered them all in the pit of Bethkid, 42 persons, and spared none of them. Um, bad answer. And so uh, the reason why he did this is because King Ahaziah, not a good king, and he led Judah astray um, to not worship Yahweh. And then he's still not done. Uh, there's still more of Ahab's people that are in Samaria. And so he's going to Samaria to find more, and now he's going to meet a, uh, a second avenger. Uh, this guy comes up to him. His name is Jehonadab. I remember it like this, Jehonadab. And so he remembers him. Funny joke again, no. So, uh, so 
Jehonadab's old school. He's an old school guy and he's a, he's a Yahweh loyalist. He wants things to go back to the way they were. And he hears that Jehu's the Avenger bringing all this back. And he's like, Jehu, is your heart true? And he's like, yeah, my heart's true. I've got zeal. And he's like, all right, I'm old school and I like what you're doing. I'm going to join you. And now Jehu's got, he's got a second Avenger, Jehonadab. And so they're going to go. Uh, and you can see that's basically 15 through 17 where he says, will you greet me? Yes, I will. Will you be with me? Yes, I will. And then you can get down to 16. Come with me and see my zeal. And I have great zeal. And they went to Samaria and they struck down everybody that remained in Ahab in Samaria till they wiped all of them out according to the word of the Lord. They spoke to Elijah. Everybody in Samaria that was related to Ahab got killed. More people. And he still wasn't done. So then after that, when he picks up an 18 uh, down through 27, if you remember, maybe you don't, but in First Kings 18, there's these prophets of Baal. And they have the whole kind of thing on the mountain, like the fire comes down, all that kind of stuff. Well, people, Baal was still being worshipped. And so Baal, Baal worship was a big deal in the Old Testament. Like you had on and on where Israelites were worshipping Baal. And so Jehu uh, needs to get rid of all the worship of Baal. And so he has this idea. And so he goes to all those who worship Baal in Israel and he says, But Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab, this wretched king Ahab that took the the vineyard of Naboth, he worshiped Baal. And then he says this. Now, this is a lie. This is a lie. Um, but Jehu will serve him a whole lot. Like Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu's going to serve Baal a whole lot. That's a lie. But he's just trying to trick him in order to finish off his task. So he, basically what he does is he says, all right, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to have the biggest sacrifice to Baal ever. So I want you to go get everybody that worships Baal. If anybody here worships Baal, get them all in one place. If they don't come, then they die. Get everybody in one. And I want everybody to see this awesome sacrifice we're going to make to Baal. Um, so you can see it in verse 25 where he basically says that, um, where are we in verse 25? So well, actually let's go up to 19. So therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal and all of his worshipers of priests. Let none be missing for I have a great sacrifice. Here it is. Whoever is missing shall not live. The Jehu's threatened to kill them if they don't show up. And ironically, he's going to kill all of them because they do show up. Uh, and so he's going to bring them all. And here's how he tricks them. He gets them all. And he says, everybody get into the solemn assembly, everybody here. And he says in verse 22, he goes to the person that's in charge of the wardrobe. Uh, and he goes, everybody that's here, that's all Baal worshipers. I want you to bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. Let them all look alike. Everybody needs to look alike here. Uh, it's important that everybody has the same clothes on. And he brought them all out the vestments for him. And so that, there they are in a big, huge thing, all alike. Now, meanwhile, he had recruited 80 more Avengers. And so the 80 Avengers are standing outside the temple. And he told all the Avengers, here's the deal. They're all dressed alike. So you know who they are. Uh, everybody's job here is to go in there and just kill them off. Anybody gets out, you're in trouble. Your job is to go in there. And you don't even have to wonder if they are. Everybody that's in there that has that vest on, they're a Baal worshiper. You're going to kill them all. And then he makes sure that there's no people that worship Yahweh in there. He makes sure that. So he went to the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshiper of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of the Lord. That's Yahweh here among you. But only the worshipers of Baal. Get all the true worshipers of God out. Only the Baal worshipers in. Good. Perfect. Let's offer these sacrifices. And he's stationed. Here it is. The 80 men outside. The, the 80 recruits of Avengers. The man that allows. He tells him, if you let any of these Baal worshipers get out, you're going to forfeit your own life. As soon as he made this kind of fake burnt offering to Baal, he said to the guard, hey, 
Time to go in. Go in and strike them all down. They went in and they put them all to the sword. So they kill all the worshipers of Baal. And he strikes them all out. And they brought out, and it gets even worse. He goes in there and he kills them all and puts them all to the sword. Verse 26, and they brought out the pillar that was the house of Baal. And they burned it and they demolished the pillar of Baal. And they demolished the house of Baal and they made it a latrine. This is a sanitized way to say a big, huge toilet. A massive commode. And so they instituted the Baal Temple into the Temple to Toilet program. Uh, time to make it a big, huge pile of dung sewage. Indicating for us exactly what you think. This is what Yahweh thinks of pagan idolatrous worship. It's dung worship and the whole building deserves to be a pile of sewage. That's what God thinks about this. And so here we get to 28 and we get to this summary statement. And it's short but unbelievably jam-packed. And we can breeze through it and think it's no big deal, but we should stop at verse 28 and say, whoa, wait a second. Wow. Look at this. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. That's pretty amazing. I mean, think about, if you know anything about the Bible, you've read through the Old Testament, Baal, Baal, Baal. He's always worshiping Baal. We get to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 28. Jehu was raised up by chapter 9 and by 1028, all of Baal is totally eradicated. When we read that, that should, that should astound us. We should let that amazing truth sink in. God, in a matter of two chapters, raised up Jehu and totally eradicated Baal from all of Israel. Now, it was bloody. It was unbelievably bloody. Ahab, the king Ahab before, had given a massive stronghold to Baal. He built the temple for him. And here comes this amazing news by the time you get to 1028. Jehu had completely wiped Baal out of Israel. That's good news for Israel. But we live in 2020 and none of us know anything about Baal. And we certainly have never been to that temple, right? So how should we as the church hear it? Here's how we should hear it. In the same way that God has totally eradicated Baal through the servant Jehu, we should hear it this way through Jesus Christ on the cross. Is this. Here's the way the church hears it. Jesus has wiped away all of your sin. In the same way that Baal is totally eradicated, Jesus now, if you're in Christ, if you're a son of Jesus, you're a son, or son of God, you're a daughter of God, Jesus has totally wiped away all your sin forever. Baal's gone. All your sin is gone. That's what the cross has done for you. It has completely purchased your righteousness. You are now in Christ, pure, holy, blameless. This is how Colossians 1, 21 through 23 talks about us. Pure, holy, and blameless. You've heard that maybe way too many times. It should astound you. In Christ, you and I are no different than the Baal worshipers. And now in Christ, we are declared holy, Righteous and blameless. And we still have this ongoing sin entangling us. And here's what verse 28 can tell us. Even as sinners that are saints that are walking forward in gutsy guilt, knowing that we're completely righteous in Christ, but we have this ongoing sin. Here's what that also tells us this. With the Holy Spirit in us, just as Jesus has wiped away all the penalty of our sin, the Holy Spirit wants to wipe out the ongoing entangling sin you have in your life that you're struggling with right now in sanctification. Just as Baal has been completely eliminated from Israel, that sin in your life that you struggle with right now, that sin of lust, that sin of pride, that sin of jealousy, that sin of greed, that sin of unrighteous anger, that sin right now can be wiped away from your life right now. 
believe that. You, you think there's no way I'm going to deal with this forever. Wrong. Baal was wiped out forever from Israel. That sin that you think you can't get over can be wiped out forever. Right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to believe that. We cannot be locked in in the chains of sin. We can, not perfect, but we can fight forward in sanctification and see unbelievable Christ-likeness happen in our life. That's what verse 28 teaches us. And it brings us to this little uh, section three, the assessment of Jehu. Now, 28, 29, 30, 31, we're going to have like uh, back and forth. 28, Jehu is good. 29, Jehu is bad. 30, Jehu is good. 31, repeat 29 because Jehu is bad. Um, So he wiped out Baal, but he still has this ongoing kind of sin uh, that happened where he practices the sin of Jeroboam. They have this weird little thing in Bethel and Dan where they have calf worship going on. Not Baal worship, but calf worship. And for some reason, he didn't stop doing that. Who knows why? He's a sinner, just like us. So back and forth, 28, thus Jehu wiped all wiped out Baal from Israel. 29, but he didn't turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. 30, something good. The Lord said to Jehu, you've done well carrying out what was right in my eyes. You did what I told you to do in chapter 9, 7 through 9. Uh, since you've done all that, <clears throat> um, because you've done well in carrying out what was right in my eyes and done well to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Your sons are going to be kings over Israel uh, for, to four generations. That's good. Back to bad, 31. But... Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. So what happens after that? This is where it's amazing, right? Um, Israel kept going on in their sin. Though Baal was wiped out, Israel didn't return wholly unto the Lord. They still had other idols. And what happens? God's going to bring more judgment through not an Israelite this time. But instead, the king of Syria, a non-Israelite. That's what verse 32 says. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, literally like taking portions of their land away from them. Haziel, that's the king of Syria. The one that they were, that Joram and Ahaziel were dealing with before, that they'd had a war with in chapter 8. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel and gives us all the territories from Jordan and Gilead. You can see all the stuff. And then we get to verse 34 and it gives us a summary statement, kind of the end of every king. Now the rest of the books of Jehu and all they did, they're written in the Chronicles and he slept with his fathers and they buried in Samaria and Johaz, his son to four generations became the king. That time that Jehu reigned over Israel was 28 years. He ruled 28 years. So we read all this and we need to realize Um, One commentator says, Jehu isn't a role model (coughs) for us in every way because he doesn't follow God's word totally. He does do the things that the Lord says, but he still is a sinner. He has his own interests sometimes in mind. He was not wholly devoted to Yahweh because he did the sins of Jeroboam. Yet God does use him as broken as he is. It doesn't mean that God approves of everything that he does, which means God still uses us too. As broken as we are, he still will use you and me. Praise the Lord. But Jehu's not a, a role model. He lies to the prophets of Baal. Lions still lying. Prophets of Baal are bad people. Lions still lying. And he continues on in the sins of Jeroboam, etc. So 
What do we make of all of this bloody judgment in chapters 9 and 10? What's the Bible trying to make sure that we don't miss with all this? It's this. In the New Testament, Jesus' death on the cross was not sanitary. It was bloody. The word excruciating was literally invented. Excruciating literally means out of the cross. They're trying to describe the pain and agony that Jesus suffered on the cross. And they couldn't come up with a word of it. So they made up the word excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. As in, that's the kind of pain that Jesus dealt with. It's out of the cross death. It was excruciating. So what do we make of this? Jesus' death was not sanitary. It was quite bloody and filled with agony. The Old Testament is just like the New Testament. That's what we make of this. In other words, in the Old Testament, God shows just how much he hates sin with judgment and wrath. In the New Testament, God shows just how much he hates sin with judgment and wrath laid on Jesus for us. It's the same in both Testaments. So let's conclude this way by making much of Jesus and not Jehu. And by that, I want to show you how Jesus is ultimately the truer and better Jehu. Jehu was just a king that was an avenger for God at some point with all kinds of faults. We're going to compare and contrast him to Jesus and see how Jesus is far more glorious than Jehu ever was. Jehu was anointed king in chapter 9. Jesus is anointed the king over all creation forever. Jehu had garments thrown on him, walked in him, symbolizing he would be king. Jesus walked on carpets of garments on his way to Jerusalem because he's the king of kings. Jehu cleansed the Baal temple. Jesus cleansed the temple and showed he had great zeal for God that consumed him, John 2, 17. Jehu says, come see my zeal when he's talking to a Jehonadab. Jesus says, let me see your heart. Jehu purged Israel of their sin. Jesus purges us of our sin on the inside in our hearts, truly cleansing us from all our unrighteousness righteousness. Jehu was the avenging Israelite. Jesus is the faithful, just Israelite. Jehu was a sinner. Jesus was not a sinner. He lived a sinless life and he died the substitutionary death for us on the cross. Jehu delivered the judgment of God to Israel. Jesus received the judgment of God for us. Jehu was a temporary king. Jesus is the eternal king of kings. So this king, Jesus, faithful and true that we can see over and over that Jesus is the truer and better Jehu. He judges and he makes war in righteousness. At any moment, armies of angels could march forward at his command at any point. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords, demonstrating to us that nobody else is worthy to follow. Nobody else is worthy to give our worship to other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we submit wholly to your kingship this morning and ask, please, God, would you remind us over and over daily with stories like this and other stories in the Bible, just how serious you take sin. So much so that you were willing to put forward your only son, your innocent son on the cross to take all of your righteous judgment instead of us. The truth is, we deserve the same fate as the prophets of Baal. We deserve the same fate as Joram and all of Ahab's descendants. That's what we deserve. But instead, Jesus took all of that for us. And now all we get is forgiveness and mercy and love. 
And now because of that, we can be called your sons and daughters and we can be called righteous, holy, blameless. God, let us never get over that. Let us take sin seriously like you do. Let us, by the power of the Spirit, eradicate the indwelling sin in our own life. And let us never be uh, idolaters with misplaced worship. Instead, direct our hearts to worship you and you only with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.